Hello and welcome to another episode of the TLDR podcast. I am Zach Michaelis, TLDR's editor-in-chief, and I am joined today by our, our two lead writers. So you're both lead wow. writers now, yeah. yeah. Um, Rory Taylor Hello. and Ben Blissett. Hello. Uh, and in this podcast, somewhat unsurprisingly, we are going to be mainly talking about the, the Gaza crisis, uh, especially in the sort of context of UK politics. Um, but as is custom on this podcast, before we get into that, we are just going to go through our unreported stories of the week. Yes. So I'm going to go around the table. Ben, what is your unreported story? So I've done something a bit different this week, oh. and I'm not doing a UK story. That is weird. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about Kenya instead. Um, so William Ruto, uh, the president, relatively newly elected, um, stood on the platform of trying to sort of reduce household costs um, in the cost of living crisis. Uh, this week, he's tried to push through um, a new bit of legislation which changes the way that uh, funding for the healthcare system works. So previously, um, Kenyans paid under the old system between 150 shillings and 1,700 shillings a month for access to what is nationalised healthcare. Uh, but they're now trying to change the system so that it's a flat 2.75% coming from people's income. Now, he's claiming, and his government are claiming, that this is going to uh, massively help the healthcare system and um, make it easier for poorer families. But running the numbers, the BBC has found that it's actually going to uh, increase the tax burden on the working class quite significantly. So it's um, not the first time that Ruto's done this. And as I say, he stood on the platform trying to reduce household costs, but he's done this elsewhere. And this is another example of this. Um, there's also concerns that with this new system, um, the well, the old system w w was subject to corruption and, and you know, money going, you know, to all sorts of people from it. And the, the concern is that despite it there being an increase in um, tax revenues, it might not actually all go to the healthcare service and might not actually help. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a bit of a weird you've, one. But, you've branched um, out there a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A bit surprised. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is worth saying as well, this comes after months of sort of on and off protests yes. concerning the cost of living in Kenya. And then the other thing that's worth saying about, but you get quite a lot of these sort of like Africa slash developing world cost of living stories at the moment. Mm. And it is worth mentioning that this is, this is in part a function of the sort of rising cost of stuff across the world, but it's also a function of the increasing cost of borrowing in a lot of these countries. So just debt costs and bond yields are just way higher than what they used to be. And that can sound really like dry and boring. Yeah. And like when you hear that US Treasury yields go up, you get all like, oh, who cares? Or when I start talking about the, you know, the, the guilt, guilt market yields. in the UK, yeah. you guys get really bored. But... In in like in developing countries, this just makes a massive difference to the mm. sort of like day to day living. There was a story, I think it was from, I want to say Guinea Bissau, I think, uh, but a Turkish power company. This isn't my underreported story, by the way. This is a bonus. Wow. Um, <laughs> a Turkish fans. power company was re is responsible for for supplying power to the capital, and they just shut off power to the capital because um, I guess the national government couldn't afford to pay the money that they owed. Yeah. Um, which is kind of pretty disastrous, I guess, for the people there. Yeah, mm. no, I, I, something similar obviously is true in lots of East Asian countries, mm. uh, well, Southeast Asian countries, you know, places like Sri Lanka and Pakistan were really struggling last year um, to basically afford their energy imports. Uh, and that, again, that was in part because energy was going up, but also just because borrowing costs were spiking. Yeah. Um, I think just, just one thing before we move on that I, I should have probably brought up originally is that... Um, the, 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 when they crunched the numbers, the BBC found that the, the minimum contribution um, that will have to be made is, will effectively double on this change. So obviously that, that, that specifically is what will affect the, yeah. the poorest and the worst mm. off in the country. So despite all this spin of it being, um, you know, a, a new system for, for you know, um, the less well off, it's, it's 
Yeah, yeah. it's not mm-hmm. true. Yeah. Well, I guess they've got to find a way to fund it somehow, and that's that's the way they've gone for. But anyway, mm. Rory, what is your unreported story? Um, I think you'll enjoy mine because it involves oil and oil prices. <laughs> I, I love oil. So mine is that the US is partially easing sanctions on Venezuelan oil. This is a great story. Yeah. Sorry, already a big fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew you like it. Um, so basically, it comes after a uh, kind of partial agreement between the Venezuelan government and the Venezuelan opposition, who for years have been kind of... Uh, you know, effectively at each other's throats, but they're now kind of coming together slightly ahead of an election next year. Um, the agreement will see international observers come and kind of oversee the election next year, as well as possibly um, freeing up uh, certain candidates ahead of the presidential election next year, although that's a bit disputed at the moment. There's not all the details and it hasn't been fully hashed out. But um, because of this tentative deal, um, the US has agreed to ease some of the sanctions it imposed on Venezuela's oil, uh, not just its oil sector, but kind of the country as a whole, um, back in 2018 under Donald Trump. Um, there's kind of two parts to this. One is obviously uh, the the impact on Venezuela's political crisis. It kind of signals that there maybe is a road out. I mean, it's not a very clear path or an easy one, but it's it's in a it's much clearer than it was just a few years ago. And the second part is uh, the kind of U.S. involvement. Um, it's not just the US being nice and saying, look, oh, you've yeah. done this good thing, we're easing sanctions, it's very in their kind of... Uh, it's in it's Biden's interest. Advantage. Yeah, in Biden's yeah. interest for two reasons. One, um, it basically will hopefully free up uh, or like bolster the global oil market um, and bring prices down, which is obviously great for Biden um, if that happens. Uh, and two, um, any kind of... Uh, any more interaction and kind of cooperation with the Venezuelan government might be able to stem migration to the US, which is kind of a persistent political issue. Um, And over the last few years, there's been a big exodus of Venezuelan migrants and asylum seekers heading to the US. So that's another issue that it might be able to tackle. Yeah, I think that this is, I mean, again, what a great story. Um, (laughs) But I really think this is such an interesting... You really have pitched this to Zach. Yeah, well done. Um, But I think the last year or so has really reminded the world of both the political and the economic Mm. sort of preeminence of oil. Like, we we like to think that we're moving away from it, but it is still sort of the fundamentals uh, of the world economy. It's the fundamental of the world economy. Um, And you've seen numerous different efforts by the Biden administration to loosen global supply mm. because obviously when oil prices went up, well, it's just a great correlation. You can find a graph of it. There's a really perfect correlation between presidential approval ratings and yeah. oil prices. And it just is the case that when they go up, US gasoline prices go up and people get angry at their incumbent mm. governments. And so presidential approval ratings go down. Um, and he's tried so many different things to get oil prices to come back down. You know, he's tried sort of preemptively loosening sanctions on Iran. There's a bit of yeah. chat about that earlier last year. He was releasing barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is this just massive, it's just a reserve mm. that the Americans have, of loads of barrels of oil that they sort of release into the global market when they need to loosen supply. And there was even some chat with Saudi. I mean, you saw him sort of slightly, well, not even slightly, he did a full-on U-turn yeah. when it came to Saudi Arabia, having said that he'd turned into pariah state and didn't really want to talk to MBS. You know, last year, he went sort of cap in hand mm. and asked him, to increase production and MBS said yeah. no. And so he's been forced to turn to Venezuela. And Venezuela is obviously a difficult political compromise, mm. but it's also worth saying that Venezuelan oil is some of the least efficiently produced and some of the dirtiest oil around. Mm. Um, so different crude oils have different thicknesses almost. If you just imagine Venezuelan oil is really, really thick, burning it is really bad for the planet. It's some of the worst oil for the planet. So refining it is really, really not very green. Um, 
And I think that the other thing that we remind of recently is the geopolitical fragility of the global oil market and the fact that all these sort of geopolitical events do end up affecting global oil markets. You know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine obviously mm. affected global oil markets, mm. but the chaos in the Middle East at the moment is also putting a strain on, on oil and gas markets. And that's in part a direct consequence of the fact that the Israelis have sorry, this is a, what a rant this is, what a great story there. Uh, direct <laughs> consequence of the fact that Israelis have said that they're going to basically stop some of the production on mm. an oil field that's off the coast of Gaza. But it's also just because everyone knows that if like we get war, we get chaos in the Middle East, which is home to many of the biggest oil and gas producers in the world, mm. we are going to see disruption to the oil market. Um, and the, you know, all the accompanying economic dysfunction yeah. that that carries with it. Um, so, again, great story. My unreported story today is actually, I mean, it's unreported by most of the media, but we're actually doing a video on it, but I still think it's really important. It is, what's been going on for the last sort of couple of weeks or so, it is the f- spat in northern Syria between the Americans mm. and the Turks. Um, and this essentially, this has been a long time in the making, and it revolves around the fact that the Americans supported the Kurds, um, in northeastern Syria to beat back ISIS way back in 2014 and then kept their support for them for a variety of reasons. Um, and the Turkey and Erdogan really don't like this because they see Kurdish separatism as the sort of foremost threat to Turkey's territorial integrity and generally just the integrity of the Turkish state. Um, and so, you know, Erdogan has basically been raining about this for ages uh, and occasionally threatening to intervene. But we got our first case of direct Turkey on America combat mm. at the very end of last month, or very, very beginning of this one, when um, the Americans shot down a Turkish drone that had accidentally flown over a bunker containing U.S. Special mm. Forces. Um, and again, as I said, it's been a long time in the making, but it is uh, it is an escalation that I don't see de-escalating anytime yeah. soon. Because, again, n- neither of them have any real interest in like sort of changing course on their foreign policies. Um, and the Turkish parliament last week basically said to Erdogan, yeah, you can keep occupying northeastern Syria for another two years. We want you to keep doing mm-hmm. that. So I don't see, I just see that tension getting worse. And that comes in the context of a wider downturn yeah. in sort of US-Turkey relations. That, those were underboarded stories. They went on for a while. Um, <laughs> mainly my fault. That's all but right. let's move on then. And we're going to start with the two UN Security Resolution, uh, UN Security Council resolutions that we had earlier this week. So Ben, you want to explain what those are? Yeah. So in essence, uh, so the 15 members of the UN Security Council, five permanent members, the other 10 are rotating, and they had a vote, well, two votes this week, one on Monday, one on Wednesday, about two separate but linked sort of issues. Um, the one on uh, Monday was about uh, calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Um, you know, on the back of the, the recent um, the recent fighting. Uh, it was a Russian-led resolution, which, uh, you know, will cause some problems diplomatically. Um, but, it, you know, they, it had um, five... Well, those that voted against uh, were countries you wouldn't necessarily expect to be voting against a ceasefire in Gaza. So it included the United States and the United Kingdom alongside Japan and France. They, they had votes in favour, so China, Gabon, Mozambique uh, and the United Arab Emirates, and the rest were just abstentions. Um, this, uh, so that, that failed. Um, obviously, if you have one vote against, then the, the, the resolution fails. So they came back on Wednesday with a sort of separate but kind of related um, 
you know, uh, resolution that they, they put forward. So this one was actually put forward by Brazil. Um, the only uh, country that voted against was the United States, and this uh, resolution called for uh, what they phrased as humanitarian pauses um, so that uh, life-saving aid could be given to the millions of people that need it in Gaza. So again, that is, that is uh, obviously separate to um, a ceasefire. Uh, but but obviously linked. Um, I think Rory knows a little bit more about the the, the Wednesday vote and obviously the diplomacy that went mm. on behind the door uh, behind the scenes um, because there was quite a lot of bargaining back and forward yeah. about the exact wording. So I don't know if you want to sort of yeah, get into that so, a little bit. Um, I mean, to point out the obvious, both of these were rejected. The second one was rejected only with the US voting against, but because it's yeah. a permanent member, it can veto resolution. So that's what happened. Um, but effectively, this Brazilian-led resolution, they did a lot of like negotiating within the Security Council about the wording. And I think the, the the move from a ceasefire, a humanitarian ceasefire was downgraded to humanitarian pauses. So it wasn't, you know, just to kind of demilitarize the, uh, the phrasing, I guess. Um, that was one of the things. They also managed to include um, full condemnation of Hamas's, uh, yeah. I think it called it a terror, terror attack and uh, everything like that, uh, the kind of things that the US and the UK had been pushing for. Um, but despite that, the US vetoed it largely because, one, it didn't reference Israel's right to self-defense. Yeah. And two, uh, the UN, the US's ambassador to the UN said that they thought uh, it was better to let the diplomacy on the ground play out and unfold, um, referring to Joe Biden being there and having negotiations. So um, she's, uh, the ambassador said, let this unfold before we try and do something from the UN level. But um yeah, it, I think for the Brazilians in particular, having gone through all that effort to try and get the wording just right for like, for like the US effectively, only for it to be rejected is pretty uh, pretty tough. Rejected as well, only by the US. Yeah, I mean, I think it was the UK and Russia abstained, abstained but that's yeah. not enough to defeat it. Um, so I'm sure the Security Council will keep kind of deliberating on this, but at the moment it looks like they're unable to come to some it, kind of agreement. Well, it seems as well. So. The US obviously was one of the countries that rejected the Monday mm. uh, resolution and was the only one that rejected the Wednesday amendment. And there, as you say, their concerns seemed to mainly about what wasn't included than yeah. what was. So obviously, um, I think on the Monday vote, they were annoyed that uh, it wasn't explicitly said in the resolution that Israel has a right to yeah. defend itself. I think the Monday one didn't mention Hamas as well. Yes. And they wanted yeah. to explicitly condemn Hamas. And the UK seems to be... Um, obviously making a very similar argument to the US. Uh, obviously, they, they didn't vote against on Wednesday, but they abstained and used mm. exactly the same justification as the US as to why they abstained, which is because it, it didn't include uh, the, the, the wording of, um, you know, Israel has the right to defend yeah. itself, which is interesting. I mean, in terms of the history of these sort of like um, these UN resolutions, you were saying earlier about, um, well, we were talking in the yeah. office about this, and, and the US is, um, uh, th this is something the US does quite frequently. Yeah, as... as effectively Israel's staunchest ally. I mean, you mentioned it, Zach, that uh, when you, if you look at the history of votes in the UN regarding Israel in particular, the US will definitely come down on one yeah. side consistently, and it is the side of Israel. So it's, it's also kind quite of surprising. Looking outside of Israel, there mm. are quite a lot of Security Council and General Assembly resolutions that mm. the US is the only one voting against. So, I mean, some of the classic ones, there's a recurring one on the Cuban blockade yeah. that everyone apart from the US says has to be lifted. Mm. Uh, there's the right to food, which mm. the, the US and Israel are normally the only two that block that. And then I remember there was one that the Russians introduced on uh, condemning Nazism that the, the Americans saw as a sort of like political point scoring exercise against yeah. Ukraine. And so vetoed that along with Ukraine. Um, 
And it's, by the way, this is one of the reasons that, for example, the Chinese are so keen to basically sort of like revamp mm. um, the UN because they think it is essentially too biased to yeah. the US. And it is quite like maybe jarring is too strong, but it's quite notable when yeah. you see these, these sort of things that do enjoy widespread support, at least within the UN, um, just being sort of like thrown out the window or yeah. thrown in the bin by the US because they're just, they're not happy with it. I think yeah. there's two interesting things about this though. Um, one, as we mentioned, it, it is a symptom of, the U.S. quite absolutist support mm. for Israel. Um, and I think there are two ways to read that at the moment. I think it's a bit of a shock because actually Biden, especially during the Obama years, really didn't get on with Netanyahu um, and has criticised him for a variety mm. of things, including perhaps most notably his like expansionist settler policies, which Biden was warning way back in 2016, 2017, was going to come to a head at some point. Yeah. He was, you know, by expanding the settler programme, Netanyahu was essentially ruling out the two-state solution. Um, and th that was always going to, that had to explode at some point, essentially. Um, but I think there are two ways of reading this, like not, maybe not a U-turn, but like, you know, his sort of pro-Israel pivot. Mm -hmm. um, and it is also politically quite savvy for him. Um, but he thinks it's the right thing to do, uh, given the sort of context of the Hamas attack. Mm -hmm. But the other way, and this was something that was pitched by Gideon Rackman in the FT, uh, recently, which is that this is pragmatism and that what the US realizes is that if you want to get Israel's ear in this, you have to be like its closest ally, you have to be a staunch supporter, you have to sort of, I think the quote was to hug them close because anyone who sort of shows any sympathy to Hamas, even whether or not that's justified, will automatically like lose the ability to communicate with Israel. Like, you see what I mean? Like, mm. Israel just won't listen to them. When you sorry, just to, to pick up there, when you say show sympathy, you said show sympathy to Hamas. Do you mean Gaza oh, or God, Palestine? Sure, sorry, yeah, better, better word to phrase. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but th th I think those are the two ways of reading it. And the other thing I think that's really interesting about this is it does show that there are divisions within the West mm. about how to respond to the Gaza crisis. Yeah. Um, and I think that became very apparent even in the early days of the crisis. We had von der Leyen and the European Commission basically unilaterally announcing yeah. that they would be suspending aid to the Palestinian Authority, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and that quickly came under fire from, you know, I think it was a couple of EU countries, I think most conspicuously Ireland, Spain, Spain, Norway as well. I think Luxembourg as well. As well. Oh, it's not EU, is yeah. it? Norway, Norway also. Yeah. Um, and I do think that while there was relative unanimity at the beginning of this conflict in the immediate aftermath of the mass attacks, you can already see divisions mm. emerging especially as the sort of scale of the Israeli response becomes apparent. Um, and I think, again, it'll be interesting how that plays out. Obviously, a lot depends on the looming ground invasion yeah. and whether or not that happens. And it'll be interesting to see like how the West splits, essentially, mm. if Israel does go for a ground invasion. It was interesting. I, I saw, uh, I can't remember who it was, a journalist or an analyst of some kind, pointing out that uh, Biden's presence in Israel effectively meant there wouldn't be a ground invasion of Gaza while he was there. Um, and, you know, I think Schultz was in Israel before Biden and now Sunak is there. It's like for every Western leader you have in Israel, you're managing to kind of put off that ground invasion yeah. for a little bit longer. But eventually it might happen. And that's when it gets really kind of difficult. Yeah, I think. I think I'm more pessimistic than most. Mm. I basically think that a ground invasion is still very, very yeah. likely. I mean, there's quite a lot of people talking about how the, the space for maneuver has really shrunk from Israel's perspective. And I appreciate that. And I think that the risk of regional escalation is definitely a lot higher. But I do just think Netanyahu 
puts his well, he has always put his political survival first and i think he also thinks it's the right thing to do but i think that the combination of those two factors the fact that he cannot survive politically mm. without a ground invasion is just not that there's no nothing short of that be a sufficient response um for the israeli public and the fact that he really clearly does think it's the right thing to do, yeah. as do quite a lot of the israeli public i really think that means that it and, is still overwhelmingly likely to happen yeah and i mean even if you take the kind of political equation out of it like he and his cabinet in particular do that their policy towards Palestine has been yeah. pretty like I don't know what the right word would be hawkish, hawkish maybe yeah, yeah. say mm -hmm. hawkish um, and you kind of you, you got the sense when the Hamas attack happened there I couldn't visualize any other response yeah. by Netanyahu government to what has happened so far yeah but um, anyway shall we talk move about on the UK response yeah. yeah there's something I mean not cheerier but yeah it's not quite it's a bit as close to home depressing. for people who aren't in the UK unsurprisingly um the gaza crisis has it's, it's caused a bit of consternation especially within the labor party i think it's fair to say mm. yeah um sunak has unsurprisingly been pretty pro-israel so far it's obviously notable mm. that the uk abstained on that security resolution as you know didn't veto vote against it as the us did but has generally been pretty pro-israel and is in israel mm. at the moment meeting netanyahu um, but there has been a bit of a kerfuffle, let's say, within the Labour Party about how to respond to that. So does one of you want to run me through what's happened so far? Yeah, so I think, again, very generally speaking, I think people on the left of the Labour Party um, have historically been more pro-Palestine. I think that, that that's fair to say. Mm. Um, Keir Starmer, in his conference speech... Uh, made a big point of making a big statement about the Labour Party's support for Israel, which received a standing ovation at the time. Um, after the conference, when uh, things developed slightly more, Starmer was asked um, about Israel's policy of um, cutting electricity and water to, to Gaza, to which Starmer replied, uh, Israel has the right to defend itself. Now, that was interpreted by many as him giving support for the actions of Israel in that specific instance. Uh, people pointed out after that 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 could constitute, um, you know, breaking international law, a collective punishment, etc. Uh, obviously, Kirstana's background is a human rights lawyer, so this, this wasn't a particularly good look for him. We should also say that that's something the UN has now explicitly warned about. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that, so, and like Amnesty aside. International and basically everyone... All those you would expect it. the lefty lawyers, yeah. eh? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So th th that that's a bit. He'd already said he'd, he'd sort of uh, made this statement of uh, Israel has the right to defend itself in response to that question um, before any of these these sort of you know um, international bodies came out warning about this. So, um, some of the grassroots within Labour uh, tried to uh, get Starmer to change his position and thereby the Labour Party's position. Um, it was mainly regional, uh, lo local mayors and councillors. Um, not many actually ended up resigning, but there's a fear that quite a lot of them could resign based on Starmer's comments. As I say, those more on the left of the party tend to be more um, pro-Palestine. Um, and this week, uh, Starmer's spokesperson has said that when he, when he gave that reply, he was actually referring more generally to Israel's uh, right to defend itself, not in that particular instance. Now, obviously, 
whether you believe that's what he was actually sort of intending to mean at the time, you know, that that, that is a, a sort of separate question. But it does very much look like and is being interpreted by some as a U-turn by the Labour leader who seems to have been caught out on this human rights issue. Um, and it, it's, you know, it demonstrates the uncomfortable position that he's in, in that he's trying to uh, show his support for uh, Israel uh, but obviously quite a lot of his party. And obviously, I, you know, I went to the Labour Party conference and this was as... Uh, um, Good little drop you know, in that. You know, this, is a, this is a relevant detail. Um, you know, this was as this was all starting. And as you walked into conference and as you were about, there was a lot of um, Palestinian uh, flags, a lot of um, Palestine groups that are aligned with Labour. You know, it was very obvious there that there's, there is a lot of support within mm. the Labour Party for uh, Palestine. Um, which is why it was quite interesting to see that he also received a standing ovation um, in his conference speech when he made a big, you know, um, show of support for Israel. So he is in an uncomfortable position, but he's, you know, that that comment certainly didn't help. And his subsequent, you know, what is being perceived as a U-turn sort of shows that 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 difficult position even even you know in, in more of a clear light. But it's not just not just Starmer. I mean, David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, had similar statements um, and also government ministers, you know, foreign secretary and whoever else, they've been explicitly asked about how, how do they feel about Israel's uh, complete siege of Gaza, um, which is what the Israeli defence minister called it, by the way. Um, and they have been, the British politicians, Labour and Conservative alike, have been very reluctant to, to say they don't agree with it, even kind of mildly say, well, you know, maybe that's too far. That their, their response has always just been Israel has the right to defend itself as long as it's within international law. But you get to this point where that that is a kind of meaningless phrase as, as, as more things happen and more international groups come out and say, look, this clearly is a breach of international law. You, you can't just keep saying, yes, they can do this as long as it's within international law because the two things just don't add up. Yeah, it's just an odd response yeah. to someone saying, well, the international law has been broken. Yeah. And you go, well, okay, if it has been broken, and you're like, well, but it has, mate. Yeah. So... Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I think it, it's not, this isn't exclusive to Starmer though, is it? I think you've seen this shift happen in lots, for, well, amongst lots of politicians um, since the Hamas attacks. Because I think the Hamas attacks first happened, you know, obviously leaving the barbarity aside. And it was a real political opportunity for someone like Starmer because condemning Hamas and supporting Israel's right to self-defense in that context, in the immediate aftermath of that attack, it's very low risk. No one disputing mm. anything else. There's, there's an out, there was an outpouring of sort of like um, positive sentiment towards Israel and sympathy towards Israel. And that also allowed him to assuage concerns about anti-Semitism in labor, whether or not they're merited, but you know, the assuage concerns that some people have about those. And also distance himself from Corbyn, which is obviously something he wants to do. Um, and I think you saw in the Conservative Party as well is that originally there was, there was a similarly sort of like absolute response. And then you're right, as the scale, as the drastic nature of the Israeli reaction has become apparent, people have sort of had to awkwardly step back from that. Mm. Um, and you saw that, I think, with the government, even cleverly, James Cleverly, the UK Foreign Secretary, was asked, he basically said in the interview that he wanted people to show restraint. Mm. And, and that is a bit of a change of tone. Um, and again, I think you're, you're going to see something, you're seeing something similar happen actually across much of the Middle East as well. 
and a lot of the Arab countries, of course, they said that you know the Hamas attacks have to be put in the context of the like settler program in Israel and all that sort of thing. But originally, they were pretty restrained in the criticism of Israel, and, and it felt like this was a real turning point in the Middle East because it, it's such a stark contrast to what happened in 1973 when the preeminent threat to the Israeli state was a coalition of Arab mm. states. And this time, the Arab states were sort of like, Hamas, you can't be doing that. That's a terrible way of articulating it, but mm. you understand. It was condemnation of Hamas mm. um, and like a relatively restrained anti-Israel response. Um, and you're already seeing in just the last couple of weeks quite how quickly Arab sentiment has mm. turned. I mean, I think the most the most stark example is the fact that uh, MBS had his first ever meeting with uh, Iranian President Raisi mm. last week. And the fact that MBS made Blinken wait overnight for his meeting. So Blinken turned up in the evening, told the meeting was then, and then MBS just didn't turn up until the next morning, and then was punctual to a meeting with Raisi, is a really quite telling demonstration of quite how quickly, especially sentiment in the Middle East, mm. has flipped on this issue. And you've got protests, like uh, kind of anti-Israel, pro-Palestine protests now in basically every neighbouring Arab from, country. Not even that, from Libya, Tunisia. Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, even Turkey. Yeah. Like, it just shows the potential for things to really escalate, I think. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't know, I, we've done videos about this and I don't know how much we want to go into it, but about the potential of Iran or Hezbollah, kind of Iran through Hezbollah to respond fully. But there's been a few times now where they've said, look, that's it, we'll get involved, now we're going to do it. And it hasn't really happened beyond the kind of firing of rockets across the border between Lebanon and Israel. Yeah, and I, I don't know if if that is if that's they've kind of shown that that is the extent of their response or if there is a genuine chance that we will get like proper cross-border war. I have such flashbacks to Ukraine here because yeah. I had a similar argument with one of the guys, uh, one of the US writers, Alex, he's on, we, we you know, we yeah. obviously talked to him about it. Um, and we had an argument before the Ukraine war. Where I said, there's no way Russia's actually going to invade yeah. Ukraine. It'd be madness. And I have the same vibes about the Hezbollah mm. situation because I'm going, that can't be, mm. that'd be a wild decision. That'd be, that'd be crazy from them. Um, but as it, the tensions constantly escalate and they show no sign of de-escalating, mm. it does just look like the, not the natural, but the logical conclusion to that sequence of events. Um, and again, I think that that, by the way, is also a symptom of quite how quickly public opinion has turned. Because, again, at the beginning of the conflict, they were celebrating it. But Iran and Hezbollah were at pains to distance themselves from mm. the attack. They were saying, look, we didn't have any involvement yeah. in that. I know we fund Hamas, but we didn't. We didn't. All, we had no direct involvement with the attacks, and you saw a couple of airstrikes come over the northern border from southern Lebanon into Israel. But it, they looked like their response, the, the Hezbollah response, was designed to signal solidarity without actually getting mm. involved. Um, and that tone has really changed, and I think that's in part because originally um, the the the, vibe, the, the 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 international community was with Israel, uh, especially in the Middle East, and I, that has shifted very very quickly. Um, and I think now Iran see that they have sufficient diplomatic cover mm. to basically either via proxy or directly start a war with Israel. But I think from the perspective of Hezbollah, it's interesting because they're very different from Hamas, and that Hamas is a Palestinian organization that mm. wants to you know effectively eliminate Israel and liberate you know, all of what they see as Palestine, whereas Hezbollah is formed out of resistance to Israeli occupation of Lebanon, which no longer, you yeah. know, Israel is no longer in Lebanon. That's kind of their interest. I can't see it being in their 
interest at all to like spark a proper war with Israel, like because I, I can't see how that ends in a good result for them. Well, I think they won't just want a weak, a weak Israel. Yeah, I suppose so. And I think that this is the best chance they're going to get to, mm. to basically. That, that's that's what worries me. Is that's the the argument that makes me think that an intervention by Hezbollah is relatively likely. Is I think they see this. Sure, it's risky but it might be the best chance we're going to get. And I think Iran's yeah. used through the same prism. I think the similar reasoning, by the way, annoying, scarily, applies to Taiwan, which is, mm. I think, one of the best arguments for being wary about what happens in Taiwan is that even if an invasion of Taiwan is associated with massive risks, it's about the closing window of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about the fact that things only get harder as time goes on. You know, For China, as the economy slows, as the population ages, as Taiwan shifts ideologically further away from China... And in Israel, I think a similar calculus applies. I think the anxiety is that, you know, for the last, let's just say, at least three years, four years or so, Israel has been normalizing relations with Arab countries. Yeah, you know, true. you had a hand, you had what, what it used to be Egypt and Jordan, and then there was the UAE, yeah, Bahrain, Morocco. Sudan, Morocco, yeah. and then Saudi Arabia on the cards. Mm. Um, you know, Israel has been getting wealthier, stronger. Hamas and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank have been basically slowly sidelined. Mm. And Egypt's own, um, Iran's own relevance has been waning. And I think Iran knows that the tide has been going against it for quite some time now, and things don't look like to change. And this is a rare moment where things are finally going its way. Mm. And so from their perspective, if, if you are you know, one of the Ayatollahs, you're probably thinking this is the best chance we're going to get yeah. in the near future to land, maybe not a fatal, but a serious blow on Israel. I mean, I know you referred to the window of opportunity there, but what do you think that window is? I know that you were, you know, you were saying earlier about thinking about this in terms of Russia and Ukraine, and there was a very clear sort of like deadline for if this is going to happen, it will have happened. Oh, in terms by, of time, when I yeah, think, timeline, yeah. So I think it, it's you don't know the time. It all depends on the ground invasion. It, it depends mm. on when the ground invasion happens, if it happens in phases, and how many troops the Israelis commit to mm. the ground invasion. So you know, if, if the Israelis commit a really significant number of troops to the animation, I think is, is sort of necessitated by the difficult nature of that, yeah. of that invasion, mm. then all of a sudden there is a weakness in the north. And I think that that's when Hezbollah will be tempted. And I don't think Iran will do anything directly, but via Hezbollah, mm. that's when I think they would be tempted to get involved. Um, and I also think the other thing from Iran's perspective is that even 10 years ago, the U.S. was far more involved in the Middle East. The U.S. is clearly, it's, it's not just preoccupied with Ukraine. It does have its eyes on Asia, mm. and it does want, it has wanted to for a very long time. I mean, it always gets on getting pulled back to the Middle East, but it has wanted to pivot to Asia for such a long time. Um, and sure, there are a couple of aircraft carriers in, in the eastern Mediterranean, and that is something, that's, that's not nothing. But the, Iran will at least be conscious of the fact that I don't, it will at least, it may, may be hoping, let's say, it might be hoping that the US decides that fundamentally it can't fight on three fronts. Mm. You know, the US cannot develop a strategic web of anti-China allies in Southeast Asia while supplying Ukraine, which looks like it's going to go mm. on for a while, and then simultaneously fight yeah. what could be an escalating regional war in the Middle East. Yeah. Without, by the way, it's worth saying, any support from its Arab neighbours. And I think this is really, really important, is that it looks like, with the, with the tide turning... Turkey, I think, has said this explicitly now, but other Middle Eastern countries are saying the same, is they will not allow, essentially, US support for Israel to go via their countries. And that really puts yeah. Israel and um, the US at disadvantage. I mean, sure, it has the Eastern Mediterranean, but that's pretty, like, complicated and pretty vulnerable. But it can't supply arms via Turkey, for example. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, Iran looks relatively well insulated in, in that in that context. Um, 
So that's my anxiety. I still think it'd be supremely costly for like Hezbollah and Iran. God, this is supposed to be a UK chat, but it's just, it's mm. escalated. Now, hey. um, but the, I, I, I just feel like the, the reasoning might be that this is the best chance we're going to get. Um, mm. And that, that's what makes me worried. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, well, we've got a full video on this. We've had many, me. many videos on this. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's my anxiety at the moment. Should we move on? Do we want to talk a bit more about the UK or shall we move on to the board? I only, yeah, go on. Well, I was going to say, I only had one, one thing to add about the UK thing, kind of in relation to what you said. When you consider the, the stakes and also the, the thing that's happening at the moment with the number of civilians, kind of the, the death toll just increasing and increasing and increasing, um, it, is, it is depressing that the UK response is so linked to like electoral... Yeah calculations and how much can I show that I'm not Jeremy Corbyn kind of thing or how much can we demonstrate we're an ally of Israel like we did with Ukraine you know it's I I find it kind of sad how much that is a part of the the overall kind of calculation in the response rather than just the Ukraine experience definitely confuses politicians as well because Mm. I think they're too quick to equate those two without realizing they're probably not the same yeah I think just to add to that as well I think I found um Kind of frustrating at times, but almost entirely predictable was is just how intensely charged the debate got almost immediately. You know, you had people going on, uh, you know, news programs, and there'd be there'd be condemnation on, on sort of both sides for for you know the exact wording that you used or didn't use mm. um, about things. Just almost immediately, it made it made debate almost frustrating to watch about it because there was so much conversation about the, the language being used as opposed to actual actions or. Um, the, the sort of substance of the matter. Um, and I think it's getting slightly better, but certainly originally it, it was it was uh, really quite quite a, a hard thing to watch. Um, so yeah, I think that 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 was um, that wasn't great. Yeah, I mean, a similar, as we said earlier, linking back, a similar thing happens at the UN, you know yeah. even at that level. Uh, yeah. you get one the same kind of thing on Good Morning Britain as you get in the Security Council where yeah. you know if you don't sufficiently condemn one thing you can't focus on another thing I mean thing. at least at the UN Security Council you have Richard Madeley that's true so, I think you should I mean, share <laughs> I mean I think it'd be good yeah we could do a whole episode on the horrendous way the British media has responded to this but yeah maybe yeah. another time um, we should probably move on to the more light-hearted end to the episode yeah the board. I, I think that's I think that's a good idea yeah. Um, so this is obviously our everyone, it's everyone's favourite bit yeah. of the podcast. We are talking about the leadership rank. What's it called? World, World leader leaderboard? leaderboard. I think. World leader leaderboard. Very yeah. good. Um, and it's bringing the board again. We're going to go the same order as we did for underreported story. And should we start with down and then finish on a high note? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. On, so Ben, who is your down? Well, wow. um, it's one of the absolute top two. I'm moving Keir Starmer down one wow. um, okay. because of his, uh, well, as we've already discussed, his difficulties in communication on um, Israel and Gaza. I think it's uh, been a bit of a hiccup and really shown sort of uh, some of the divisions within the Labour Party. It's not, it's not been a particularly great week for him. No, that's very fair. Yeah. Rory? Uh, this is to go down. Yeah, to go down. Uh, I'm taking <clears throat> Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese down one. Uh, You've asserted yourself as our Australia expert. Yes, I mean, I put him there in the first place when polling suggested he was going to lose this, well, his side was going to lose this referendum. And 
he the the yes campaign in australia did lose and this was about the indigenous voice oh so thing. he's been knocked down twice because, because of, of that same, same thing, thing. yeah um, but also uh i think on a on a kind of more long-term scale um it puts him in a difficult position because he still has to deal with he still has to come up with an approach to indigenous affairs effectively um, but this big policy of his has failed, has been yeah. rejected, so he's in a bit of a bind on that. It also, um, and this kind of, <laughs> I don't want to go on too much, but uh, I was tempted to put King Charles up, and I'm not going to, but I was tempted to because I think that the rejection of the Indigenous Voice uh, vote in Australia means that there is almost no chance that Albanese will hold another referendum on abolishing the monarchy because um, he is a Republican himself, and he said if he does do one, it will be in his second term, assuming he gets re-elected. But this whole experience of having this big project uh, campaigning for it and then having it rejected, I think Scarred that will him. make him think, mm. I'm not going to do another referendum. Can I unilaterally, as podcast host, yeah. put Charles up? I think <laughs> sure. that's, that's a, yeah. great, that's okay. a great reasoning. Could you do it? King just... Charles, you're going yeah. up. Whoa, okay. I just think it'd be quite funny for this whole, like, what does it say about our politics to have King Charles at the very top of yeah. the board. I think, I think it's already got something to... We've got Biden at the very top, then Starmer and Charles. Yeah. Then, you know, the very top. I think it's... Uh, I think it's ideologically confused. That's it's what I'm massive, saying. Yeah, it's all yeah. over the place. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be made even more... Just like TLDR, ideologically confused. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's going to be, I'd say, consistent. So, and for my down, I'm going for, for reasons we've already discussed, Benjamin... Netanyahu. Yeah. And this is obviously not because of the horrifying attacks we saw in um, Israel last or the week before last. It's because in the last week or so, I think for reasons we articulated, that international support, especially in the Middle East and the Arab countries for Israel, has waned really quite significantly. Yeah. Um, okay. Here's for the here's for the good news. So who's going up then? We obviously, already have Charles. Yeah, Charles. Uh, but who's up. Adding to the, the sky yeah. high ranks. Um, ben, you want to start? Uh, I think it'd be better if Rory started. Oh, you have yes. to, yeah, yeah, we, okay. I don't have the face. That, yeah. that, just, that feels like I've justified the King Charles one because then we yes. have three yeah, people. Yeah. So the person I'm putting up uh, is Donald Tusk. Tusk? Tusk. Tusk. Um, former and now incoming, presumably, Polish Prime Minister. Go uh, here, right? Yeah. Um, basically, his coalition along with some other uh, opposition parties have won enough seats for a majority in Poland, ousting the right-wing government and bringing Tusk back into power. He's kind of the, the saviour of the Polish centre, I suppose, uh, and opposition, um, because previously the uh, Law and Justice Party were pretty dominant, but he came back in to lead this new, uh, this kind of revived coalition, and they've, they've won. Uh, he's not Prime Minister yet. There's a long process, and I think the ruling party will do their best to kind of Slow it down a bit, but I think he does have such blue eyes. He's got very blue also, eyes in that. I, yeah. I'm interested that he's about half the size of Sanchez. Yeah, that's Jan's fault. Yeah, um, it's. I was going to say it does sort of. There's a bit of a resurgence of what we might describe as the centrist dad in Europe because <laughs> yeah. you think about it in like a year's time, yeah. I mean, it looks like Sanchez will hold on. Yeah, going to have Sanchez, Tusk, Starmer, almost definitely yeah. at some point. Macron, he's probably Schultz. the king of the centrist dads. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they're feeling all a little bit 1990s. 1990s. Yeah, early yeah. 2010s. What are you talking about? David Cameron. He's not Angela really Merkel. centrist. Nah, well, no, no. Mm. I feel like that's more, it's more of a 2000s, late 90s okay. for the centrists. Okay. Um, but anyway, my anyway. So my one going up is unfortunately oh, it is Vladimir Putin. I just 
I'm going to need to find a reason to bring him down again next you week. Are, but I think. Do you want me to do it? Yeah, sorry. I just. Uh, I, it's not. It's not great that he's that high up on the board. It, it doesn't reflect our endorsement of. No. Today. Yeah, but it, it at least him. reflects something, and him being that. Well, that the fact that he's up. having a good time, unfortunately, which is mm. which is true. Since we've started this podcast, he has been having quite a good time. Um, I think this is this is for a couple of reasons, uh, but. This is something Rory mentioned last week um, when I basically told you to put Putin up, um, <laughs> which is what you mentioned in the podcast. You Very pinned it all on me. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's obviously benefited from the, the Israel war for a couple of reasons. First, it means that the Americans now have another thing to focus on militarily. Second, it's boosted oil prices, um, which is obviously just like it is the defining element of the Russian economy and whether or not Russia can fund its ongoing war in Ukraine. But I think the third reason is that the kerfuffle at the UN and actually that the nature of the Israeli response and the way that Western leaders have, have been forced into at least superficially hypocritical positions mm. vis-a-vis Ukraine and Israel mm. has really helped, well, it's done damage to the West diplomatic cause vis-a-vis Ukraine um, and, and basically bolstered Putin's argument that actually the rules-based order yeah. and the sort of like the Western club they pretend that they're about universal values, but actually when it comes down to it, it's, it's real politics yeah. um, at the end of it all, and that they are just protecting their own strategic interests and dressing it up in something else. I don't believe that, but it has bolstered his argument, and you can see how it's going to push the, what you might describe as the global south mm. uh, away from the West, who've done a pretty good job, actually, of pulling them back over the course of the war in Ukraine, back towards at least the non-aligned, if not the pro-Putin camp. So that's why I think that he's had a he's a good month. There was an official in the he told the FT, I think he described it as a gift from God for Putin. Really, uh, and saying that all the good work they've done with the global south has been undone, mm. um, which is which is bad. So there you go. Okay, well that is the global leader leaderboard. Um, and that is the the end of the podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope it wasn't too miserable. Um, and if we said anything terrible or controversial about the Gaza crisis, please do let us know in the comments. Um, thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you again next week. D- do you want to know in the comments? I don't know if I do want to know. Fine. I mean, I'll do it anyway. Yeah. To be fair to them. So. All right. <laughs> Sorry, Jan. No hole in the wall. Yeah. Bring on the wall. Um, Bring on the board. Whoa!